I won the triple in Wimbledon. I could beat Billie Jean King. Does she have the nerve? Call Bobby. Tell him it's on. Now, don't get me wrong. I love women in the bedroom and in the kitchen. Keep talking, Bobby. The more nonsense you spell, the worse it's going to be when you lose. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. That is a clip from the upcoming film The Battle of the Sexes, starring Steve Carell as Bobby Riggs and Billy. Gene King is played by Emma Stone, movie based on the 1973 tennis match that captured the world's attention, a match that was uh, was claimed by Billie Jean King, correct? Three sets to none. There is some speculation and has been for some time. Bobby Riggs had a reputation as being a little bit of a gambler, and there is some thought that he placed a sizable bet against himself. And perhaps cashed in. So I suspect that might be where some of the intrigue in this movie comes from. The behind the scenes of this outlandish match that took place at the Astrodome in Houston. The the largest indoor arena, quote unquote, in the United States at the time. And jam-packed to the rafters. 40 million people watched it on television. And the winner got 100000 bucks. A little bit disrespectful. Disproportionate there, I thought, in terms of all the people involved. But it it did captivate the world, and it's still spoken about to this very day. Yeah, and the movie is coming out on September 22nd, 1977. And the reason... Not 1977, that's my birthday. (laughs) It's opening September 22nd. Of this year, 1977. Is September 22nd your birthday? Yeah. Oh, well, you're much forgiven for I that. Just typed out my, I just typed out my year like That's a robot. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> you went to default mode. Are, are, you, are you purchasing uh, concert tickets online right now, or are you trying to imitate a, a, a bot? I guess so, right now? yeah. Just, I am a robot. My birthday is September 22nd, 1977. It opens this September 22nd. <laughs> the reason... <laughs> The reason we're talking about the, uh, the the battle of the sexes, Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King, is based on some comments from John McEnroe. He made these comments during an interview with NPR a couple of days ago. If she played the men's circuit, she'd be like 700 in the world. You think so? Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't think Serena's like an incredible player. I do. But there's, you know, the reality of uh, what, what would happen on a given day a Serena could beat some some players, I believe, because she's so incredibly strong mentally. But if she had to just just play the circuit, the men's circuit, that would be an entirely different story. Um, so maybe at some point a, a women's tennis player, you know, can be better than a men, anybody. I mean, I just I haven't seen it in any other sport, and I haven't seen it in tennis. And I I suppose anything's possible at some stage. So this morning, John McEnroe appeared on CBS this morning. We'll play a little bit of that for you a little bit later on in the program. But to kick us off, Christian O'Mell joins us now. He's a co-host of Sports Sunday along with Keith McCullough and myself and sort of our resident tennis expert. I, I, now, I don't know if you're a tennis historian per se, Christian. I watch a lot of tennis. But in terms of the current day game and this question about Serena Williams, why don't we start there? How dominant a player is Serena Williams? On the women's circuit, there maybe has never been a more dominant player than she is. And the longevity that she's had, she's been around for nearly 20 years of just top level tennis when she's been healthy. Right now she's out because she's pregnant Uh, But I think there's almost every expectation she's going to come back and be the best again. 
But you said on the women's circuit, wouldn't based on her credentials and what she's done on the women's circuit over the last two decades, the question was sort of asked, and I'm asking it now, could you not consider her the best tennis player of all time? Sure, absolutely. You can say that. And you can separate. You you can both say, yes, she's the best ever, but that doesn't mean she has to be able to beat a man at tennis. Mm. You can just say she's the best player ever. And there's probably never been a man who dominated the men's circuit as much as Serena Williams has dominated women's tennis in the last two decades. I'm just looking at the Grand Slam singles totals, and Serena is not on the top of that list. She is not, but she's very close. Yeah, and she's I, second. It's a different uh, era. It's it's really hard. It, there's so many hypotheticals when you're talking about sports between eras, and a lot of people like to compare men's and women's numbers, especially in things like this. But I, from watching Serena over the last 20 years, and obviously I wasn't alive to watch Martina Navratilova, uh, but it, it, there's a different level. Like no one can touch. She can only beat herself. It seems right, except for the yeah. There's the odd time where. Some uh, unseated Italian right. player who no one has ever heard of. I can't, and I'm, I'm just going off of memory. But there was a there was yep. an instance. Was she Italian? It was Roberta Vinci in the twenty, uh, I believe, twenty sixteen U twenty fifteen U.S. Open. Serena was going for the season slam, and everyone thought, oh, she's going to get it, no problem. And she loses to Roberta Vinci, who no one's really heard of in the semifinals of the U.S. Open. So. And she was unseated, I believe. So you're not wrong. Okay, very good. <laughs> so historically, in terms of numbers, I think you were re- referring to Martina Navratilova. It's actually Margaret Court. Oh, Margaret oh, yeah, Court yeah, yeah, has 24 yeah. singles titles, and Serena Williams has 23. Right. And uh, actually, Court's been in the news for other reasons, but we don't. We're not going to get into that right now. But no. yeah, Court. A long time ago, she played, and I just. It, it's really hard to again compare eras. Just the level of tennis right now. When you watch a tournament, and Serena's not there. There's just a big, like a gap, like something's missing. Like you're not seeing the best. It's like if Sidney Crosby was gone out of the Stanley Cup playoffs, it'd feel like something was missing, right? Because you don't have the best player there. Does she hit the ball harder than than most of the women, if not all of them? Yep. Her serve is up to some speeds faster than men. in uh, And her ground strokes definitely as well. Uh, her mental toughness, John McEnroe pointed it out. There are so many times when you think, oh, Serena's about to lose. Mm-hmm. She's falling apart, and then she just roars back. Well, this is part of the conversation that you have in sport, is this idea not only of comparing Serena Williams versus name anybody on the men's tour, but to compare eras. We were having the conversation here yesterday with Richard Cloutier, very briefly, who's the best Winnipeg Jet of all time. I said unequivocally Anders Hedberg. He sort of laughed at me and said, well, no, it's Timo Solani. Well, Timo Solani, based on what he did for his entire career, of course, he scored 76 goals in his rookie season as a Winnipeg Jet. But based on what he did as a Winnipeg Jet, I will still say Anders Hedberg was the best Jet as a Jet. But these are why these discussions are interesting, because it is comparing eras, different times. And so I want to ask this question. We know that Canadian hockey has produced some incredible women's hockey players. At what level would a women's hockey team, the Canadian national women's hockey team, we'll say of the Salt Lake City era, what level of men's team could they predictably defeat? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if well, it, I don't know anybody. Nobody it, knows but, the answer. But the, the the problem is that we keep asking these questions. I think 
Why do we have to know if women can beat men? Why does that matter? Right. I I don't think we have to know. I don't know if we'll ever right. know. But and I I think it's I think it's great conversation. Sure. I just think the, it seems like we're belittling a little bit women's accomplishments by saying, well, they can't beat men, though. That's what I'm saying. Well, so so is it when we talk about uh, like John McEnroe, for example, referring to the top women's tennis player ever? Do do we then need to? Because I'm wondering if John McEnroe, at this, on that same token, would if he's talking about the best tennis player ever, would he qualify by saying the best men's tennis player ever? I don't believe so, and I think that's that's what this question was. It, he said, you know, she's the best female player ever, and the question asker said, well, why why do you say female? Why don't you say anyone? Because and then he answered with what we heard off the top of the show. There, uh, I think he would just say tennis player. He wouldn't say men's tennis player. Because they're different games, right? I mean, the, I actually prefer watching women's tennis and not, yes, I know they wear short outfits <laughs> or whatever, but typically women, there are rallies. The, the, right. It's not just serve ace or serve, uh, you know, missed stroke. Right. There's a lot fewer aces in women's tennis, and uh, there's definitely more rallies. Now, it depends. If you're watching Djokovic-Murray, that match will take five and a half hours because they both play incredible defense. But, like, if you're watching Canadian Milos Raonic, most of his points are over in 10 seconds or less. So it's not, I, I, I absolutely get your point there. So I guess the question to our listeners is, is this worth the discussion? And is this a question that begs to be asked or begs to never be asked again? Do we need to make those comparisons? Do we need to make those qualifiers? And regardless of whether it's Serena Williams as the best tennis player in the world versus Everybody else, or is it okay to qualify it somewhat? Uh, there's several directions this discussion can go. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. You can also text us. would love your feedback on this because it always is one of these sort of heated discussions. And uh, let me give you uh, an example here, a personal example. I remember playing basketball, drop, just at a drop-in at Bernie Wolf. Greg's playing with audio right now. What was that? Was that McEnroe? That's McEnroe. I want to play it on the uh, extra here. Some of the things he might be really famous for. Well, I'll tell my story then. Why don't you go ahead and play your clip? It was the wrong side. The ball just came up on. It was was a bit of a spread, Mr. McEnroe. That was a good call. Excuse me? I think it's ironic. Some of the stuff coming from John McEnroe. I really like him. You cannot be serious. That ball was on the line. Super brat, as he was often referred to, wasn't exactly the best ambassador for the game of tennis for mu- most, if not much, of his career. Did he say the pits of the world? Yeah, the pits of the world. Where was this being played? That was at Wimbledon. <laughs> Directed at a chair umpire. <laughs> and, 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 and they really love rudeness in Great Britain. Yeah. 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 They, that went over very well. 204-780-6868. Should John McEnroe be called out for qualifying it as saying Serena's the greatest women's tennis player ever? Is he wrong to say she would be number 700 on the men's circuit and then not apologizing for it the next day? 
Is this a conversation worth having? 204-780-6868. It is 117. We'll have a look at your forecast. Next. McGarry, you had a story you wanted to relate to try and tie this all in together and uh, from personal experience here. I do. And you know what? Before I do that, I see Jim's been waiting on the line at 204-780-6868. And just before we introduce Jim, uh, we're talking about this John McEnroe comment about Serena Williams saying that he, if she were on the men's circuit, she would probably be ranked number 700. Jim is at 204-780-6868. Hey, Jim, what do you think? I, I think that Mr. McEnroe is trying to set up a match in the future between him and Serena for big bucks. <laughs> you think he's laying the, the, the groundwork? I think he could be. Well, you know, he is a marketer. He has been a, a broadcaster for a long time now, Jim. And you mentioned something just as we went off the air. Christian and I said, well, mention that. He is selling a book right now. So right now, anything that he can do to stay in the news cycle is great for sales, I would imagine, right? If he can just stay in the discussion, this is perfect yeah. for him. Would He's you... still playing on that senior tour down there, I think, too. They play the odd tournament, the seniors. Oh, yeah, and they do the exhibitions and all that sort of thing. I mean, McEnroe looks great. I actually saw him in Australia when I was there. I saw him play a Legends doubles match with his brother. It was entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jim, uh, do you think Serena would be uh, higher than 700 if they oh, combine the rankings? Where definitely. would you put her? I'd put her in the top 100 because of her serve and her strength. Appreciate it, Jim. 700, that's... That's pretty low. <laughs> yeah, it's, and Jim, thank you for the call. It is a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. She clearly wouldn't be number one, but uh, she would certainly be ranked a little bit higher yeah. than seven hundred. We understand where he's coming from, but he just—if he would have said maybe fifty, this would have been a much less insulting, and maybe this conversation doesn't quite happen this way. No, once again, this isn't uh, the conversation that's going to solve the world's problems no. by any stretch of the imagination, but it's. Something that people are talking about Absolutely. all over North America today. That's why we're talking about it today. And uh, Sam, that's my answer to your comment at seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. What a waste of time comparing women to men. What do we hope to gain from this? There are more important topics. There sure are, Sam, but that's what we do from time to time. We like to just talk about what other people are discussing. I apologize if it doesn't tickle your fancy at this particular moment. Yeah, because I think if you were to take the top level male tennis player, the guy at the at the top of his game on the men's circuit and put him against Serena, Serena Williams, I don't think Serena would stand a chance. And that's not a slight against well, women. Well, and she's even said that before. There were rumors about a match between Williams and Andy Murray, who has been in the top three, top four for the last seven years. And she said, if we played, he'd beat me love, love in like 10 minutes. So it's not worth doing. Yeah, I mean, it's just... It's the same thing, uh, like uh, I think there was a, uh, we, we talked about the Canadian women's national team. If they were to go up against the men's national team, I don't think it would be uh, uh, even close. And I remember, and this is where I'm going with the, the Bernie Wolf story. I'm playing drop-in basketball. I'm a teenager. I want to say maybe 14, 15 years old, and they used to have these drop-ins. Maybe they still do. I don't know. And me and my friend Keith, Keith Ressler, uh, a.k.a. the Rizza, as we used to call them. We were just playing, shooting around on this hoop off to the side, and these two girls come over. I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4". I want to say then I was, I don't know, probably six feet. Keith is a bit smaller, but still, these girls come over, and they're just, they're tiny. They're tiny, and they challenge us. And we think, <laughs> okay, let's go, little girls. And they killed us. They <laughs> killed us. I don't know how old they were. I don't know if they were in high school. Maybe they were even in university. I don't know. But they shot the lights out. They were just draining 
threes left, right, and center. And I think we played them three times. We kept wanting to play them again because we're like, okay, now this is the time. We are men. We want to win. Yeah. And clearly they were at a higher skill level than we were just average kind of hacks. But we thought because we were... We were male, they are female, we were automatically better, we were proven wrong. But if we were at the top of the basketball world, and they were at the top of the basketball world, uh, men versus women, I think that it would have been us over them. But they proved that it's not an automatic. So Yeah, the gap is closed uh, without question. I, I like this one. I want to see men's versus women's curling. That's an even playing field, I think. Now, I think on one of the Skins games, they tried that in Niagara Falls a couple of years ago. In one of the Grand Slam events, they had mixed, didn't they? Wasn't Homan in one of the men's tournaments? Yeah, they did something like that. But they also, I think, Jennifer Jones, I'm sure, played a men's team in Niagara Falls or something. We'll have to look into that uh, during the information break uh, with Global News at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Greg says, well, if you're going to combine men and women's ranks, she ranked in the 700s, then what's wrong with what he said? Well, we're not saying there's anything wrong. We're just wondering if it was anywhere close to accurate. It's not. And also having the conversation, is it worth talking about? Are we at a point where... Maybe we just uh, find out somehow, some way, or do we just resign ourselves to the idea? Serena's a really good tennis player. She's plain and simply one of the very best of all time, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether she played on the men's circuit or the women's circuit. I just want to read this text here. Uh, We were instructed not to read it, so naturally I'm going to read it. It says, you don't have to say this on the air, but this stuff makes me change the station for the rest of your program and maybe try again tomorrow. Sorry. Hey, listen, as Greg pointed out, we're not trying to solve the world's problems with every single conversation we have. And like any radio station you listen to, you're not going to like every single thing that comes along. But as you said, try if you're going to try again tomorrow, as long as you try again, that's great. We're happy to have you back. It's Mackling and McGarry, Christian O'Mell. <laughs> this is fantastic. Canada's women's soccer team will definitely defeat the men's team. There may be a point there. That is a good point. Thank you very much, GC. Christian O'Mell, thank you very much for joining us as well. And we'll have Global News at 1.30 up next. Serena Williams, John McEnroe going back at back and forth about things. Serena... Kept it to a minimum, though, on Twitter. Dear John, I adore and respect you, but please keep me out of your statements that are not factually based. I've never played anyone ranked, quote-unquote, there, nor do I have time. Respect me and my privacy as I'm trying to have a baby. Good day, sir. John McEnroe (laughs) suggesting that the greatest woman's tennis player of all time would rank about 700 on the men's tour. It sparked some conversation. And uh, back and forth, not only in our newsroom and certainly uh, around uh, the the Twitterverse and in social media. And uh, McEnroe, in fact, appeared this morning on CBS Morning to qualify some of his statements. But if you were expecting an apology, uh, not so much. Welcome. Good to see you. What's new? What's going on? Let's just start with the elephant in the room. That's right. Why was it necessary for you to say uh, that anybody, Torino, uh, it couldn't beat the 700th player you, on uh, As you know well enough, Charlie, I respect Serena very much so, okay? And I was simply calling her on an NPR, which supposedly you're supposed to, you know, this is the, where you can say it like it is and you're going to get honest feedback. 
she's the greatest player, female player that ever lived. Then the lady said to me, I don't remember which one, but she said, why did you say woman? Why don't you just say the greatest you know, tennis player that ever lived? And so then I felt the need, um, however, unfortunately, I'm prob probably to defend myself. I don't know, just say what I really felt. I mean, which is about what I think she would be. I think you're referring to the fact that I said she'd be about 700 right. in the world. Yeah. Right. I've got a solution, Gail, though, because I know that you're friendly with Serena, and I, I think I, at least I, until I'm yesterday, the I was... Table I'm, right now. I'm yes. just waiting. Would wait. you like to apologize? Uh, no. Um, no. But I, 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 the, I, offer. I, yeah. the, the offer is this, is because it seems in tennis, unlike other sports, that they're always asking about how women, they always ask me how I would do for someone. Why isn't this old bag John McEnroe? How would he do against Serena? Why don't you combine, just solve the problem? I'm sure the men would be all for this. The men and women play together. And then we don't have to guess. But, John, you didn't answer Charlie's question. You really should. You really do need to answer Charlie's question. What was it? I didn't. I, you're well, right. I wasn't paying attention. Why did you to do this? Yes. It wasn't necessary. Yeah. It, it was not but necessary. You knew it would create. Here's I, didn't know, no, I didn't know it would create. You content. didn't? No. John. Has anybody ever. I've said this a thousand. Does Bobby Riggs Charlie, mean anything to you? What? What, what, what do you think, Charlie? You're a tennis guy. You yeah, like to play tennis. I, I see you on the tennis court. Right. What do you think that Serena Williams would be ranked if she played have, in the men's game? I have game? no idea. Well, you, if, if you had a guess. Well, she seemed pretty strong to me. I mean, Very strong. The greatest female player that. ever. I, okay, we can't. Nobody can prove this. Here's what she said, though. Just, yes. dear John. That's a nice way to start. Yeah. I adore <laughs> and respect you, but please, please keep me out of your statements if they are not factually based. Or that or not. She said they're not factually based. You know, Serena you know, has a way with words. I've been in the, in the, the uh, room five different times with five of my kids uh, were born. Um, I don't want anything to go wrong with Serena because she's pregnant. I don't want to upset her or whatever it was. She's, I think she was doing it tongue-in-cheek as well. And I think that deep down we're talking about something. I can't even believe we're talking about it. But... John. Nonetheless, John. if you want to keep talking about it, I, I I'd be more than happy to. I do. I actually do. Because I think everybody knows. And another thing. No, men are stronger. Men are faster. We all get that. But I think it sort of belittles what women do on the tennis court. I think that's why people are upset. And the fact that you ranked her 700. So my question to you is, she won Australia weeks pregnant. You ranked her at 700 on the men's. Where would you rank yourself? Uh, myself would be... Yeah, where be, would you put yourself? Uh, now, are you asking me at 58 years of age what I'd be ranked on the, in the tour if I had to play best of five? Yeah. Which is what the men have to do at majors? Yes. I would be currently about 1,200 in the world. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get nothing but honesty from that man, John McEnroe, which is why we're talking about this today. I loved the re how he responded to the question, do you want to apologize? And he just said, just kind of nonchalantly, uh, no, and then just kept going. It wasn't even an afterthought for him that he was not going to apologize. And look, maybe 700 is an exaggeration, but I think the point that he was just making there was once he was called out by the interviewer because he referred to Serena as the greatest women's tennis player of all time. And then she says, well, why do you, why is that necessary? So I guess he's, maybe he's thinking, well, there, you know, there's men's tennis and women's tennis for a reason. Uh, so maybe 700 was an exaggeration when he says he wasn't thinking that there'd be anything going on. I'm pretty sure he, he's very deliberate in some of the, the words that he chooses you know, he's got a book out right now that he's trying to promote, I believe. So to go 700, to it's 
It's it's in an astronomical number, I think. But the point I think he was trying to make was she would not be number one. I like the idea of combining it at some point and and find out. It might be a short-lived experiment or it might be a much longer experiment than we imagine. I don't know. You know, this is this is all conjecture. It's all opinion at this point. But, you know, it got me thinking about Doug Flutie, who many consider the greatest Canadian Football League quarterback of all time. Mm-hmm. Anthony Calvillo, who never played in the National Football League, threw for 73,000 plus yards in Canada, never essentially never played a down that meant anything in the National Football League. We qualify that. Because there are players like Warren Moon and Dieter Brock who played in both leagues. Yeah, Warren Moon, and very successful in the National Football League. Almost, you know, outside of the championships, his statistics were equally as impressive in the NFL as they were in the CFL, and they were mind-blowing in the CFL. So it's easy to consider Warren Moon the, the best, one of the best quarterbacks of all time on either side of the border playing either game. But I point to Calvillo. You have to make that qualifier based on the understanding that the Canadian Football League isn't the National Football League. There's a standard different level of play involved, and I don't think that degradates in any way Anthony Calvillo's legacy as the greatest quarterback in Canadian football, does it? No, it doesn't. You know, he's he's he will always be regarded as one of the greatest, and even the name Anthony Calvillo, to me, as somebody who is... Not a big sports fan, but as somebody who has had to read sports casts at 680 CGOB for the last 14 years, Anthony Calvillo is still a, a name that strikes fear into my heart because I knew that Anthony Calvillo had a, stood a very good chance of burning the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and most of the time he did. In fact, I went to one. I, I've only been to a handful of Bomber games, and one of them was against the Alouettes, and sure enough, the Bombers got smoked by Anthony Calvillo. And it was, I think it was one of those things where he had kind of had the bombers number. And as a result, he, uh, but he was well-deserved. I mean, he was so good at this game at the Canadian football league. So, but would he have been able to succeed in the NFL? Well, he he didn't really ever get an opportunity. Doug Flutie got that opportunity, uh, was successful only moderately. So he's not remembered as one of the greatest quarterbacks in football history, based on his time in the NFL, he's a little bit of a footnote. He had some interesting games and somewhat uh, a smattering of success, so whether it was for Buffalo or for the Chicago Bears. I think he played for the Patriots for a little while, but he's most famous for his Hail Mary in college football and his time in Canada. But that doesn't deplete in any way the way he's appreciated in all sections in all areas of football because if you're a football historian you know who Anthony Calvillo is Doug Flutie is Warren Moon and Dieter Brock and it doesn't matter what side of the border you live on you know who these guys are and you rank them based on what they did at what they and where they practiced their craft and I think one of the the things that is uh, is so great about this kind of a conversation and I realize I mean Sam has expressed uh, distaste in the conversation saying, I, I asked Sam, well, if you don't like it, what would you rather hear? And uh, why don't you like it? And Sam says, well, it's just pointless. I want to hear about real issues with a little bit of fun mixed in, not half an hour of unanswerable questions and useless debates. 
But thanks for reading my messages and thanks for sending them, Sam. But it's just one of those kind of classic debates that always tends to sort of come up in sport, whether or not the the women can beat the men, can or who's then uh, there, there was referenced earlier regarding era. Mm-hmm. You know, the the one that jumps to mind for me as a basketball guy is Jordan LeBron, who's the better of those two, right? right. It, it and it sort of just it inevitably leads to those fun kind of debates as to who would be better and sure. who is better and how can you even say one person is better than the other based on era or who their their competitors were i look at a i think of a boxer roy jones jr he you can certainly correct me if i'm wrong but it seems to me that he destroyed everyone that he faced because he didn't really have any competition is that that that's kind of the feeling absolutely so he i think maybe is one of the greatest Fighters ever, but he never really had a chance to, I think, well, prove mo- it. right, most successful, yeah. most successful based on who he was competing against, and so sometimes that jades the the whole thing. I get into arguments all the time with sports guys, especially Bobby Orr fans, because I say, yeah, you you know when Bobby Orr really made most of his hay. It's when the National Hockey League went from six teams to 12 teams. They doubled inside and in size, and there were some really bad teams in the National Hockey League for, for a majority of Bobby Orr's career. Not all of it, but for a majority of it. And he really went to town, revolutionized the game, best defenseman ever. Yeah, one of the best scoring players, whether defense or forward. Yes, but put it in a little bit of context. You know, Wayne Gretzky played in this era of wide open hockey. Well, nobody gets, if you get 100 points in the National Hockey League these days, you are the the top of the hill. Wayne Gretzky got 212 points one year. You may never see that again. What's Timo cl- Solani got 76 goals as a rookie. He, you know, you may never see 76 goals from one player again, never mind a rookie. That's true. Yeah, the level of competition is starting to even out. Uh, we got a text here. Okay. Uh, oh, you know what? Here's a text from Darren. He's done some research. Guys, in 2016, there were just over 9,000 professional tennis male players in the world, according to Mr. Google. Keeping that in mind, it's not really outrageous for Johnny. That ball was in <laughs> for Johnny. That ball was in McEnroe <laughs> to rank her at 700. Also, it doesn't matter because men and women are different and therefore are ranked against the same sex. Just my opinion, Darren. And you never on this show ever have to qualify anything with just my opinion. That's what we're inviting. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about things you might talk about at your Friday night barbecue after you've tipped back a couple lemonades or otherwise, (laughs) and the discussions that you get in with your buddies, with your family, with your friends, with your spouse. There's going to be a lot of people talking about this at the dinner table tonight. That's why we talk about it. We're not going to solve it. We don't have the answer. It's an opportunity. It's a forum. I like this one. Rob says, personally, I think he was given her props, and he was. He is a huge fan, no doubt about it, Rob, and it has twisted to bait him or bite him because he is, after all, Johnny Mac. No question about that in my mind either, Rob. Good point. And Eve says, we met Doug Flutie at Disney World in line for a ride. <laughs> nice guy. That's, that's kind of neat. <laughs> yeah. No, you know what? And uh, talking about nice guys, uh, we were discussing Timu Solani yesterday, uh, the day that he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation, the nicest 
famous people slash athletes you've ever met. Uh, Doug Flutie would be right at the top of the list for me and Timu Solani would be right there with them. Some really awesome guys. And, and that's an, that's an odd combination as well, because there is a saying, you know, you never want to meet your heroes. Yep. Because that can be a bad thing. It doesn't always go exactly the way you think it's going to. I'm trying to think if I have ever met. Well, I think I've referenced that one where I was a kid. I remember meeting uh, an actor. I was I was like four or five years old. He was in a show called Auto Man. I think we've had this conversation before. On or off the air, we've had it, yes. Auto Man is a show with, with a guy who drove this shiny blue car, and Auto Man was like a... I guess I think he was, I don't know if he was a hologram or if he was a computer created, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the actor who played him, I went up to, to meet him and he said, well, you got to pay. So uh, I ran, I was, I left sort of sad. I kind of soured my whole experience towards that. So I think since then I've tried to, I don't like to get in line to meet the heroes because I don't want to be disappointed i don't know takes away some of the mystique too i think i uh planned an entire holiday for the 1999 the turn of the century depending on which way you look because some people said no 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 the turn of the century was until 2000 to 2001 but most of us celebrated the millennium 1991 to 2000 and we went to cabo san lucas in mexico expressly to be at cabo wabo to see Sammy Hagar, we managed to heat, uh, meet him a couple of days before the concert, and fortunately, he was as nice as I could ever have imagined because I would have been devastated otherwise. Whether you're 5, 15, or 25, uh, you don't want to meet your heroes and find out that they're real jerk stores. It, uh, somebody says, I met Chris Walby back in the day, also the nicest guy you want to meet. We got a couple of phone calls coming in here, so we'll pause. We'll have a look at your forecast, and then we'll see what you have to say. It is one forty-nine. Your forecast up next. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on six eighty CJOB, and we have waiting on the line Keith. So yeah, Keith, hi, hi there. What are you calling to say? Well, you know, I, I understand. I understand that you know that people have become outraged that you know how dare he, you know, sort of appear to besmirch uh, Serena Williams. I don't think he's, I, I think the, the thing about McEnroe is he kind of says what he thinks, and that's always been, the, you know, love him or li- like him, or just like him. It's the, you know, he, throughout his career, he, whatever he's thinking comes out of his mouth. And, you know, that that's caused him all sorts of problems, but it's also served, served him well. When you take a look at, well, when you take a look at the, just at the basic facts uh, of today's game, for instance, in, in terms of men's serves, Milos Ronix routinely serves the ball at 250, 255 kilometers an hour, mm-hmm. right? Serena Williams, her best serve, which is an awesome serve, which would kill me if I played her, is 200 kilometers an hour. I, I mean, like, you, they, and if you take a look at the guys who are ranked at 130 or 140 or even 300, right, uh, their serve speeds are all 220, 225, which is all a lot faster, a lot more powerful. Uh, it's something that, for instance, the Serena Williams has never ever seen. Is that kind of service thrown at her? So it really is comparing apples and oranges. Yeah, it really uh, is. But you, you're yeah. doing a great job of uh, digging deeper into the statistics behind it. You know, Milos Ronic, uh at times has the hardest serve in tennis. That doesn't always turn into success on the tennis court. A lot of it is your craftiness, your athleticism, your ability to return the ball. But you make a great point about Serena not having to see speeds like that on a regular basis, if ever, right? 
if ever. Well, she no, she wouldn't have, and and, and I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect that that anybody should think that that, that, that they're going to see that kind of see, speed and size coming at them. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's about uh, about finesse. But you know, when you take a look at what her service speed is, it's what what the guys are used to. You know, on second serve. Outstanding points, Keith. Appreciate it. You call in any time. That's a that's a a great uh, insight into the topic today. Thank you very much, Keith. We do appreciate it. And one thing I would, I should, and now that I think about it, I would like to know the difference between the the women's golf game and the men's golf game because I don't, I know that they don't play the same courses. But I would be curious to see how the women, the LPGA players, would fare on the same course in the same conditions. The guys play because I don't I wonder if aside from the fact that maybe the women don't hit the ball as far if there's any what the difference would be I think if you took the driving out of the game if you took it out of the equation you might have a very interesting comparison there right because the feel for the ball uh, the chipping game the short game everything inside 200 yards how really could it be any different other than knowing your clubs better than your opposition? That would be an actual real test. I like that. Yeah, because they, so a guy maybe would use a, a, an eight iron instead of a, a six iron. And who cares? But whether but they both get the ball to the green mm-hmm. just as efficiently. So yeah, I'd like to I'd like to see that take the drive out of it, which is sort of what they do with the women's tees, right? Is the idea is to try and take away that length the advantage men have off the tee and try and take it out of the game. What if you took it out all together? I think that would be fascinating. Coming up to 2 o'clock on 680 CJOB. What hurts the most on you? Everything. It's cold. What towel? It's really cold. So what was your time? What did it say? Nine hours and four minutes. What exactly took nine hours and four minutes? Brett McGarry and Greg Mackling here to answer that question with our in-studio guest. His name is Taryn Gazelle, whom once upon a time, you might remember that name, he used to do business reports for us, and now he has a YouTube channel. It's called Triathlon Taryn. And Taryn, you undertook something this weekend that took you nine hours. You did this on Sunday, I believe? That's right. What was it? Uh, three, uh, three of us, two friends and I, we swam from the South Perimeter Highway to the North Perimeter Highway, uh, through the Red River. So how did that idea come about? Was it, <laughs> please tell us it was over beers. Uh, somewhat, somewhat. In 2014, a uh, friend and I, Patrick Peacock, we, uh, we swam 27 kilometers down Lake, uh, Lake Lactabonny. And jokingly, he said, afterwards all right what's next and and i kind of wanted to slough it off because i was in no mood to ever do it again and i said well if we're (laughs) going to do it again it's got to be huge it's got to be like hundreds of people watching and oh it's got to be through the red river and i thought that that would basically uh put it off for in perpetuity for forever and then there were some tests done last year and pat uh saw them and it said said that the red river wasn't actually as dirty as people think and he texted me and he said i'm in and I went, oh, goodness, I think now we got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of backed your, you swam yourself yeah. into a well, I, hate, exactly. to, I yeah. hate to tell you this, but those tests might have been done as part of our River Feature Series on Global and CGOB back in the fall. I, yeah, so I owe this to you guys. Yeah, Thanks so it's a lot. kind of our fault. Yeah, <laughs> really appreciate that, fellas. Well, you're welcome. Well, and your, your, your wife is on the line as well. This is how we found out about this from Kim Babbage-Gazelle's 
Facebook page. Kim joins us on the phone. She wasn't able to make it in to the studio. So, Kim, when Taryn comes to you and says, hey, guess what I'm doing? What was your reaction? Uh, the usual eye roll, and yeah, this sounds about right. <laughs> Why an eye roll? Because uh, he and the, the triathlete community, he and his endurance um, friends, seem to have a lot of kooky ideas like this. So it was just like, yeah, yeah, this, this does not surprise me. And yes, I'm sure you're going to do it. So there was no tipping point, Kim. You didn't at one point go, oh, they are going to do this. It was like from the get-go, you had in your mind all the plans that would have to be made. And uh, you knew that eventually, somehow, some way, you'd be corralled into being a part of this team. Pretty much. Um, you know, as he mentioned, he and Pat did the long swim in the... Uh, in, from Lac de Bonnie to Granite Hills a couple of summers ago. And then prior to that, Patrick and a friend, Jacques Marcoux, had swam uh, a long swim in Lake Winnipeg, which was another huge marathon event. So, yeah, there's these aren't guys who just kind of come up with ideas and don't do them. When they say them, it's going to happen. But, of course, my reaction was, and I know you'll get to this, the Red River, are you crazy? But it was when you uh, and Global did the... Um, did that series and it did come out that yes, indeed the red river is much cleaner than um, anybody previously thought. That's when those guys actually did say, okay, now we're doing it. We've got our proof. We're going. So it literally is thanks to you. So Taryn, what, what time did you have to wake up on Sunday morning to do this? First alarm went off at 2 AM and I, I took a big bowl of oatmeal and, and fed my, my face with that. Cause that was going to be basically the only solid food that I have all day. And then I went back to sleep for another couple hours. Hold on, and, hold on. Uh, you woke up to eat and then you went back to bed. Yeah, yeah. Explain you, this part of the philosophy. Well, timing things before an event like that, a marathon, a triathlon, I always try to eat about four hours before the event starts. So I've got uh, ample time to have um, bathroom preparation before uh, and enough time to fuel before. So I'll always wake up about four hours before the, the race or the event goes off and then go back to bed for another couple hours. And uh, yeah, that, that was the schedule. We got going from, uh, from River Heights at 4.45 a.m. So you mentioned bathroom. So I actually wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> what did you do for bathroom breaks? Well, because I mean, I imagine you didn't just swim for nine hours straight without a break. <laughs> Have you ever seen that scene in Dumb and Dumber where Lloyd uh, says to the guy on the back of the bike, he says, I got to go and just go, man. <laughs> we're in the Red River already. I mean, it's not like we're going to make it any worse. So there's no dye in there that, that you know, <laughs> the, the identify blue, who the, the blue dye. is? Yeah. No, yeah. no, okay. all anonymous peeing. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So did you did you go the whole time without a break? Like, not just bathroom break, I mean a break break, period. There was no time that we took a, a dead stop. We would take uh, every half hour to 45 minutes the boat would stop and we'd take a pause. That would be anywhere from about one to two minutes of nutrition. So we'd take bars or gels or, or whatever we wanted to eat. And that's the fuel that keeps you going. Uh, so we have to stop every, uh, yeah, 30 to 45 minutes or so. But you couldn't stop for very long because it was so cold that if you stopped for too long, you would start to shiver. So you would want to keep those pauses as tight as possible so you'd keep moving. You know How what? cold was it, Kim? Sorry, Brett, didn't mean to interrupt there. How cold was it, Kim? It was pretty cold. I mean, air temperature was, I want to say, 
three or four degrees when we all met out in River Heights um, before we even got to the water. By then, it was probably about six o'clock. I think it was about seven degrees Celsius air temp. Uh, the water uh, was, I think, Karen, correct me if I'm wrong, 64 Fahrenheit, which is about 17 Celsius. That's right. Yeah. So that was, I mean, for us out of the water, it was absolutely freezing. None of us dressed warm enough. I mean, it's the end of June. Who thinks you're going to need a parka? But I could have used a parka. We were frozen. When the guys hopped in the water, they said, oh, this is way better than we thought. It actually feels pretty warm. But, you know, when you're in a body of water that is so much lower than your own body temperature for such a long period of time, that cold catches up with you quick. So they were chilly. We did warm up um, on the support boats as the day went on and the sun kind of came up and warmed up the air a little bit. But yeah, those guys, I mean, that water was cold. We're speaking with, that's Kim Gazelle on the phone and Taryn Gazelle is in studio with us. And Taryn on Sunday swam from the south perimeter to the north perimeter, the Red River took nine hours. And on the subject of cold temperature, hypothermia claimed one of your compatriots, did it not? That's right. Pat Peacock, he had to pull out at 27 kilometers, uh, a little over six hours into the swim, which was shocking. Uh, of the three of us, Pat is by far the the most, uh, certainly the, the fittest swimmer, the strongest swimmer. Uh, if you look at the guy, he's a, he's a 40-year-old dude with an eight-pack, and that actually got to him. Because he didn't have the, the little bit of insulation that, that I've got, uh, he actually, he had to pull out. And at that 10 kilometer mark, we had been actually looking forward to that exact point that he needed to pull out as more or less the finish line. It was just past the Disraeli. And we were saying in the weeks leading up that that's, that's like home free because after that point, it was just a straight 10 kilometer shot. And you think, well, you know, I've been doing this for six hours. I can pull out 10 kilometers, no problem. And the, the current would pick up because it's a straight river at that point. And that was actually when he pulled out that that point where we thought that it was going to be home free. That was where he decided to turn it in because he couldn't function anymore. He couldn't eat. He couldn't turn his arms over. And at that point, I wasn't around him. But I remember what it was like mentally at that point. Like your your brain almost started shutting down. So I can imagine where he was at mentally. I was trying to compare this to some other swims that take place. And, and one of the landmark swims that some people will do to test themselves is the English Channel. Mm-hmm. And the shortest possible distance for that is 35 kilometers. So you did further than that. And I suspect when they do that English Channel swim, it's around that 35, 40, maybe 45 kilometer uh, type of swim or do they do they go the widest part no, of the channel? They typically go to the shortest part of the channel. Uh, the the thing that's different about the English Channel swim is that there are because it's it's a a measured distance and so many people do it. They've created rules that you you have to follow rules that your swim is null and void if you don't follow them. And one of the biggest ones is having a wetsuit. If you have a wetsuit on, it's it doesn't count <gasps> essentially. And the water temperature in the English Channel at its warmest is how warm ours was. So at its warmest. At its warmest. So we ended up having a, a huge advantage. We had current helping us. We had wetsuits that English Channel swimmers don't. When English Channel swimmers actually do that swim, they bulk up 30, 40, 50 pounds. And we were actually trading some emails with somebody who's done some some really cold body water swims recently or over the last couple of decades. And he said that every day he would take two cold showers, freezing cold showers, just to acclimatize his body to it. 
You know what? And that, that leads to the question I want to ask after we have a look at your forecast, which is what motivates people to do this sort of extreme fitness? Because I'm just thinking it'd be so much more fun to just sit on the couch and watch Game of Thrones. But, uh, you know, to tri- triathlon Taryn is here to tell us otherwise. So we're going to continue our chat with Taryn Gazelle and Kim Gazelle is on the phone talking about this amazing swim from the south perimeter to the north perimeter on the Red River, 37 kilometers. They did this on Sunday when it was cold, and we'll hear more about this and his YouTube channel after your forecast, which is up next. Hey, buddy. Hey. Well, my swimming pool problems are solved. I just found myself miles and miles of open lanes. What is that smell? That's East River. You're swimming in the East River? Yeah. The most heavily trafficked, overly contaminated waterway on the eastern seaboard? Well, technically, Norfolk has more gross tonnage. <laughs> How could you swim in that water? Yeah, I saw a couple of other guys out there. Swimming? Well, floating. They weren't moving much, but they were out there. But, of course, uh, Kramer from Seinfeld, who... Uh fictitiously, of course, used the East River to solve all his swimming woes. And Taryn Cazell joins us now, and he used the Red River to prove a point. 37 kilometers on Sunday from the south perimeter to the north perimeter on our famous waterway, the Red River. Unbelievable feat, uh, just under 10 hours in the water. So, Taryn, this kind of an extreme example of, of fitness or extreme fitness, 37 kilometers. You know, I like to go for a swim from time to time, but uh, I would never think to do this. So what is it that that drives you to say, yep, I not only want to do this, I can do it and I'm going to do it? There's a lot of things. One of the biggest things that I think has kind of come into everyone's lives is, is comfort. We're, we're rarely challenged physically and mentally to the absolute max of, of our, our capabilities. And we, we rarely, you know, we don't feel pain. Like, we, you know, a hard day is when you're stuck in traffic. And that feeling of, of adventure is, is kind of gone from our day-to-day lives. And it's become so easy for a lot of people to say no to 5K running races or triathlons, and they seem really fearful because we've got so comfortable. And when I started becoming a little more fit because I, I didn't come up in uh, with a background of endurance sports, that feeling of, of fear when I started doing my first few triathlons, it made me feel alive. And and that the, the times that I would say yes to trying to conquer those fears, uh, that was when I, I started feeling like there was, you know, there's some jazz in my life in those few moments. And I kind of wanted to do this swim, uh, this swim and other swims and other big feats to have that feeling of being alive. And, and we wanted to choose the Red River specifically because it's a lot of, it's kind of like that microcosm of just saying no. When people hear that you're going to swim in the Red River before they even hear about the water quality tests or how dirty it actually isn't, uh, how there isn't actually an undertow that the current is your friend when we were doing it, they say, no, 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 you shouldn't do it. That That's the same reaction as, no, I can't run a half marathon. So there's a lot of factors that go into it, the personal challenge, the personal adventure, but also sending a message that you should. And and I would encourage people to take on some scary challenges like this because it it's when you feel every emotion that you possibly can. 
Kim Gazelle is still with us. And Kim, I want to ask you, you know, the Red River has some major symbolism in our community, and that was not lost on, on this group. No, for sure. I mean, it's uh, obviously it runs right through the heart of our city. Um, there is a lot of mythology surrounding it. Uh, people are very scared of it. Um, there's a lot of stories. I mean, the first thing a lot of people said was, you're going to drown. You know, that was the first reaction and not necessarily because what, of what Taryn's talking about, the instinct that everybody says or has to say no to hard things, but legitimately because people were afraid. Number one was you're going to drown. Number two was you're going to need weeks of decontamination from all the E. coli you're going to take in. Um, and so there was people were terrified on their behalf because it, this body of water, again, there's just so much mythology surrounding it. Um, and even after the the global report came out, um, saying that, no, in fact, the water is much cleaner than you think, and it's a lot safer than you think. Um, people still just thought this was an insane thing to do simply because of the danger. And um, it was so even on the day messages were coming in, um, it, I was running all of Taryn's social media accounts for his triathlon, Taryn uh, YouTube, cha- YouTube channel, as well as um, his Instagram and Facebook pages, keeping people updated and the comments coming in all day long. And, and even from people who, I would have thought would be in the know saying, are they nuts? What are they doing? Um, so it was really cool that they had the opportunity to show that, you know, it wasn't disgusting. It's not what you think. Um, it's actually quite, it's so beautiful. I mean, having been on the boat for 10 hours, that we had two support boats um, with us all day long, providing the nutrition, making sure everything was safe. You know, there was a lot, a lot to go into it. They didn't just hop in the river and start swimming. Um, being on those boats all day and looking at the city from on the river, oh, it is so beautiful down there. I got to tell you, if anybody has an opportunity to get on a boat or get in a wetsuit and go for a swim, they really should. It is stunning, really stunning. And if you want to see Taryn's journey on Sunday, you can go to his YouTube channel, Triathlon Taryn. He's already got the video up. It's just under 10 minutes long. When did you start that channel, by the way, Taryn? Started that, uh, it would be almost two and a half years ago now. Okay. How many videos you got up there? <sighs> Somewhere around 250. Pretty impressive that you got that up that quickly. How long How long did it take you to do to put that video together? Uh, we do a video every day, actually, on that channel, and uh, that was one of the more intense edits. Uh, I actually owe that edit uh, to uh, the colleague that I work with, Melissa Ward, uh, who did a fantastic job on it, and she cranked it out all day yesterday in somewhere around five hours, I think. Yeah. I shot all the footage. Just yeah, Kim shot all the footage. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the footage is outstanding. Steady ham, Kim. Well, well Thanks done. A lot. <laughs> uh, John wants me to ask, how, how did the river taste? Because you must have had a gulp or two of yeah. Red River water. Yeah, yeah. It tastes like the lake. Tastes like being at the lake. A little bit more sediment. A little. You can actually taste that little bit of texture, but uh, it it tastes like like lake water. There's really nothing different to it besides a lot more sediment that makes it murky. So you could only pull your hand about an inch away from your face before you wouldn't be able to see it. It's just, it's very cloudy. Well, And can I just add, sorry to interrupt, um, in the entire day, in the 10 hours that we were going down the middle of the waterway, um, we came across only two pieces of garbage. Uh, Jacques bumped into a shoe as he was taking a stroke, and there was a child's party balloon floating in the river and that's it there was no garbage there weren't disgusting things floating in there it was legitimately like being on the lake and I I was even interested I mean I did expect to see 
you know, garbage bags floating or who knows what, whatever might end up in there. And there wasn't, it just wasn't there. There were, yes, a lot of tree branches. I'm sure Taryn can attest to getting a lot of uh, tree branches in the face as he was swimming. But other than that, we didn't come across trash, which is, again, another misconception. One of my own misconceptions. I was expecting to see a lot and we didn't. Kim, thank you so much for that last word on that. And Taryn, congratulations to you for making it 37 kilometers, man. You're a, you're a champion. The south perimeter to the north perimeter on the Red River. And go to Triathlon Terran's YouTube channel to watch the video so you can see it. It's truly amazing. Coming up to Global News at 2.30, thanks to Taryn Gazelle and Kim Gazelle for joining us on 680 CJOB. I don't know when the last time you were outside, Brett, but I haven't been outside since about 9 o'clock this morning. It's 26 degrees It doesn't look like it's 26 degrees outside. Does that make any sense from where we sit? It it does kind of make sense because I'm just looking outside and I, well, it looks like more blue sky now than cloud from before, but there's just a slight, I don't know if it's haze or there's just something in the distance. You know, if if Bob Ross were were painting the the horizon right now, just going to put a nice little layer of white uh, fluffy clouds off in the distance. There we go. Just get your pearl white. Just a light dusting. Happy trees. Oh, look at the happy trees. Moving in the breeze. Yeah, so because of that, it looks, It look. you're right, it does look like it should be cooler, but 26 degrees. I'll take it. Not too bad. want to talk right now about fidget spinners. You're perpetuating the problem, McGarry. I was looking at, oddly enough, it was Kim Gazelle who was just on with us. I was looking at her, because that's how I found out about Taryn's River uh, experience was on her Facebook page. And prior to that, I noticed she had posted this thing on Facebook about fidget spinners where she was sort of saying, I know I'm kind of late to the game here in terms of like realizing that this is a thing. Hang on, let me just find it. Obviously, I'm not around a ton of kids, so I've missed most of the fidget spinner craze. But the past few days, out places, I've been in checkouts or wherever, and kids with their parents, have been behind me. And they've all had one of these doodads in hand. I've gotten the sense that a lot of people are pretty irritated by this craze, but why? I'd rather see these kids play with a spinner than stare at a phone or iPod. No. And there was was a comment that was made, and I, I won't read who made the comment, but the comment was, the other side of this debate is that this is a legitimate aid that children with autism use, and it's only since neurotypicals have brought the mainstream that they have become a fad. This is insulting to those who legitimately need these tools to calm them. So I was talking to Greg about it, and we thought, well, let's have a chat about that, because I don't know anything about that stuff. I know that I like to... I have a, a whole armada of fidget toys at my disposal at home. One of them is, in fact, a fidget spinner. So neurotypical is a word that I had never heard before, and I could think of only one person to approach this with. She is a good friend of the programs and a very good friend of mine, Dr. Kirsten Worth, Worth Behavioral Health Services. And why don't we start there? What is that exactly? What, neuro? I, I wrote it down, but I can't read my own writing. A neurotypical. Neurotypical. Kirsten, do you use that terminology? Well, lots of people do. Um, and I think it's become um, a, a way of people talking just on 
Facebook groups and things like that about people basically that are typically functioning as compared to individuals who have, say, autism or ADHD, where they would be considered, you know, not neurotypical, meaning they might have brain differences. So I think we uh, we sorted that out ourselves. So we aren't on the wrong track in terms of our uh, idea of what that terminology might mean then, Kirsten. What about this interesting take? And I thought it was a good one from Kim. Uh, aren't these things better than the three eyes, the pods, the pads, and the phones? I think that is a very individualized question. <laughs> and it really depends on what what effect that really has on the individual and the people around them. Um, whether whether it helps or not. And I mean, the, it's still an empirical question. A lot of people say that fidget tools are tools that are designed to help people with autism, for example. Um, but again, that's a, there's a lot of books, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and testimonies, um, but there's, there's really not a lot of evidence to suggest that um, fidget toys are in fact tools that are going to help the individual. And it depends on what we're talking about helping them for exactly. So do you know then what the, uh, why it's sort of, because uh, you see you mentioned that it's very anecdotal. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that these sort of tools like a fidget spinner can help a child with autism. So what has sort of fueled that? Do you Are you familiar with any of the anecdotal tales? Uh, some people will say that it helps reduce people's anxiety um, or that it helps them to focus more or, um, you know, like kids will report, oh, it just makes me feel better, those kinds of things. Um, and that may be, and what, to the extent to which it helps the individual, I would, I would think it's because it distracts them from what else is going on. So if it's a tool for, say, anxiety, um, that means that it's something that is distracting the individual from the symptoms that cause them to feel anxious. Um, what else is it distracting them from? It would be my question. So it depends on what, what context they're using them in. Kirsten, when we talk about this whole idea of anecdotal and, and individual basis, and does it really matter whether or not there's any empirical or any research, uh, empirical evidence or research to back up the idea of whether these things work or not? If they're working for one individual that is having issues, whether it be ADHD, whether it be anxiety or autism, shouldn't that be good enough? That's kind of a loaded question uh, because there are a lot of factors to consider there. Um, one one factor to consider is um, to what extent is it helping the individual over, say, more empirically validated tools? You know, if it's somebody who has anxiety, for example, the, the most widely supported um, strategy would be an exposure-based one where instead of avoiding the situation that causes you anxiety, you're actually exposed to it more and then you practice um, different strategies to become kind of desensitized to, the, to those um, contexts and scenarios so that you can actually manage your own emotions around it better. Um, and so, so to the extent that using something that doesn't have research might prohibit you from using something that does and will give you, you know, p perhaps some better strategies. So that that's maybe one factor. Um, another factor might be that, you know, you're spending money on something. And I mean, 
fidget toys are pretty cheap. So it's not like you're breaking the bank or anything on them, but you're still spending money on something that, that, you know, you may be better spending your money on something that does work instead. Um, And then also there's the context of how much does it impact everyone else as well. And so with fidget toys in particular, they've become quite the classroom craze. Uh, And I know that lots of teachers have kind of um, banned their usage in their class just because it's become something that everyone's interested in and they're all distracted and then nobody's paying attention. So, So there's a number of different factors to consider there. It's actually on my list right here. Do fidget spinners do anything other than drive parents and teachers crazy? <laughs> so I guess I guess that that there is uh, I jury's still out on that. Yeah, the the research jury is out on that, and and then to the extent of okay, so let's say maybe it is helpful for, for um, Joey, you know. So then what I would say is okay, let's make sure it really is helping little Joey instead of. Um, hindering him. So to what extent is it distracting him from other things or help or helping him? So if I was looking at a student who had difficulty staying on task, then I would be measuring on a daily basis how often they stay on task without the support of the fidget tool. And then I would put the fidget tool in and then measure how often they stay on task in the same concepts and see if their on-task behavior does, in fact, increase because that's how we would—that's how we would measure whether it's helping someone focus better. Is what what is the outcome of that? So I would be wanting to look at what are the objective measures that anybody could see, and defining that so that we could actually compare if we're, if we're using this as a therapeutic strategy, is it in fact having an impact on um, their behavior? And that's the best way to do it. In terms of what I've come across. Um, that's been researched there's and and it's and it's not necessarily you know uh, published peer-reviewed research it's there's a lot of posters and things like that um, they're giving different questionnaires and things to the students to ask them how they feel about it and if it's made a difference for them and often they report that it does but we still don't know if that actually had an impact on what they learned Dr. Dr. Kirsten Worth is with Worth Behavioral Health Sciences. We're talking about fidget spinners. Is there a genuine benefit for those with behavioral disorders and other challenges, including autism? And uh, Dr. Worth, I I know for myself, I have a fidget spinner at home. I have a a slinky. I have those sort of those Chinese, those those bouting balls that you kind of spin around in your hand. I, th- I don't know if it has to do with the fact that I used to smoke and I just need to keep my hands busy, but I find that if I'm not, you know, even if I if I put my phone down for a second, I don't know, I just, I, I need to be fidgeting with something. You referenced the, the anxiety therapy to sort of expose somebody to that to help them get over it. Is there a way to, to help somebody who maybe fidgets too much to to back off of the fidgeting? I did come across a couple of studies where they looked at what they would consider habits like, you know, like skin picking or things that would be kind of more, you know, harmful to their to self that would could be looked at as a fidgety type of a behavior. And in those kinds of situations, they did use something like a fidget toy or a fidget spinner, that kind of thing, um, just so that there was an alternative behavior that was, you know, less 
harmful to the individual. So, I mean, certainly if it's not harming you in any way, it's not harming anybody else in any way, uh, you know, I don't know that there's any harm in it. And we, I mean, I think fidgeting probably goes back to the dawn of time and we all do it in the way that we did it when we were in elementary school is going to vary just because of what's available. But I certainly sit in meetings and flick my pen around or I'll click it. <laughs> repeatedly, and if I notice that I'm doing it, I'll stop doing it. But like, like this? I think we all. En- <laughs> Sorry. Like this? Can you hear this right now? I'm clicking my pen. Oh, I can't hear it. Okay. <laughs> but, but I'm sure Greg can. Oh, I can <laughs> it's hear probably it. Probably annoying. <laughs> no, and you know what? I do the same thing. My nanny used to always give me a hard time because I used to tap my foot and shake my leg. I still do it at my desk. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, I'm a doodler as well, and that sort of, that calms me and gets me focused. It seems so contrary, I think, to anyone that doesn't deal with any of these sort of um, concentration issues. It seems counterintuitive that doing one thing would help you focus on another, but it works for me, and that's why I'm having a hard time uh, dismissing this idea of these spinners having a positive effect for some kids. Yeah, and I'm not saying that they don't, just that there's no empirical evidence to support that they do. And so, again, if I was going to be looking for the individual, then I would... And maybe for you, Greg, what I would do is I would, you know, cover a specific topic and have you doodle and things like that and then test you on how much knowledge you retained of what I talked about (laughs) afterwards uh, with the fidget spinner or, you know, your pen flicking or whatever. um, And then maybe without and see if you did retain more knowledge from the topic when you use the fidget tool versus not using a fidget tool. So that would be a good way to check out if it actually does work for the person or if they just are, you know, bored perhaps, and (laughs) there could be a better way of learning. Yeah. Boredom uh, creeps in there as well. And, but it's on a different level. I volunteer to be a test subject anytime. Kirsten, (laughs) uh, just uh, let people know how they can get in touch with you and, and uh, exactly why we reach out to you because you do a ton of work with, autism. In fact, you're one of the leading researchers and uh, providers uh, here in the province. Well, I think there are definitely more leading researchers in the province than uh, than I am, but, um, but for sure, I do a lot of uh, intervention for kids with autism or various other behavioral difficulties. So yeah, for sure, I can be reached at 204-807-6779 or my website is worthbehavioralhealth.com. Dr. Kirsten Worth, thank you so much for joining us today. Worth Behavioral Health Services, talking about fidget spinners. And if you've got any comments on these, 204-780-6868. The reason why this sort of captured my attention in particular is just walking through Polo Park, for example. I mean, that was what, about a month ago? We wandered over to the mall to speak to the young lady at the fidget spinner kiosk. And now I'm seeing them at Calendar Club has a sign-up that says fidget spinners available for a limited time. I know you can get them, I think, at any 7-Eleven. They're available almost everywhere. They were advertising them on the digital board across the street at Canadian Tire. They are just about anywhere you want to get them. If you can imagine they sell it there, they do, and then a couple places where you can't imagine that they would sell them. And then, of course, you can go online, which I... I may have recently ordered another fidget spinner. May or may not have. That uh, maybe probably cost 
too much money. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, I like the spinners. <laughs> I like them. So two zero four seven eight zero. 6868. And there's a, I fell down a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole on this as well. I just can't believe the fidget spinner craze that has blown up like a volcano over in, in recent months. So it's like the modern day yo yo. Yeah. Yep. I, I, that's the, the only thing that I can equate it to in terms of the part of the body that it tests and your dexterity and that sort of thing. It, it's bizarre. My kids, I, we must have five of them in my house now. 204-780-6868. Your forecast is coming up next. Not too sure if I've ever had the hiccups while I've been on the air before, but I might be on the verge of it here. Uh-oh. Yep, I'll be keeping an eye on that. So if I duck out of here, you'll know exactly why. Well, if uh, you know any hiccup solutions, let us know at 204-780-6868. And it sounds like, yeah, I think I just heard something there, Greg. But on in terms of the fidget spinner stuff, I think... That, I mean, it is definitely a craze, and there are countless videos on YouTube. You can buy them at countless websites. You can buy them everywhere now. I know that for me, and I don't know if if we we referenced earlier that they're only mainstream now because neurotypicals brought them in. This was a comment that we read on Facebook. I don't know if I would be considered a neurotypical. I've always sort of gotten the sense that I have... There's a little bit of ADHD, maybe OCD, I don't know. Uh, but I have to be fidgeting, and I think that's probably why I took up, one of the reasons why I took up smoking, because it gave me something to do with my hands. So when I'm at home, I'm always playing with a toy uh, of some sort, because it. I think for me, if I'm not doing that while I'm trying to watch TV, then I'm constantly reaching for my phone. So I need to keep my phone in another room and keep these, like, I, I have to have a slinky on my table. I like Are to play you with a passive slinky. at anything, or do you need to be engaged in everything you're doing? Like, even when I used to be purely a listener uh, to CJOB, I was always yelling at the radio. I was a regular caller into whether it was even back in the day Peter Warren when I was in my teenage years, <laughs> and Charles Adler and I spoke on the phone me as a listener, him as a host, far before, way before I ever became friends with him off the air. So, uh, you know, and sports, I have to be. If there's a team that I'm not interested in or a player that I'm not interested, I'm not watching just because it's hockey. Yeah. I'm watching because the Jets are playing or there's some guy from Winnipeg that I want to see do well. There has to be some emotional thing for me to be connected. So are you passive at anything? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll re- have to revisit this the next hour. I'll just very quickly say there are times where I can be passive because I do enjoy it. Like I think if I'm uh, with friends and, and if I'm and I, they need help to discuss something, then I can certainly be passive and just listen. But if like meetings, for example, I know meetings are are a part of work for mo- for many of us. I am the worst at meetings. I struggle to stay awake in any meeting I ever go to. There's always a point where I feel like I'm about to check out because I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. I'm at work to work, and sitting in a meeting just makes me feel like I'm I'm shirking my duties and. I could. I'm usually bored to tears, and I'm the other way. I got to be saying something smart, alecky, or involved in the discussion in some way, shape, or form. Or I am just like you described. I'm out. Yeah, we'll have to continue this uh, either today or tomorrow. In the meantime, global news is up next.
Heading towards a long weekend. We don't have the forecast for Friday, Saturday, or Sunday yet. Thursday, mix of sun and cloud. Chance of showers. Hopefully, it'll get a little bit nicer. Uh, mosquitoes well, don't sound like there'll be a problem, though. Would you like the long-term forecast? Do you have one at your disposal, Mr. McGarry? According to Environment Canada, mm-hmm. Friday, cloudy with a decent chance of showers. What do you say 20. decent? What, 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 like, can you quantify that a little? Like a 40%. Oh, 40. Okay. And then on uh, Saturday, sunny and 24. Sunday, sunny and 25. Well, I can oh, handle then, that. And Monday, long weekend, so I should give you that. Sunny and 28. Again, this is the long-term forecast. That could change, but it looks good right now. The long weekend, as of this moment, looks really good. So there could be some swimming weather in there mixed in with uh, the weather that we're having leading up to the long weekend. And uh, Manitoba, topping a list that we would like to see Manitoba not be at the top of a list. Sometimes we celebrate Manitoba's achievements. This is one we'd like to turn around, Brett. We are joined on the phone by Kevin Tordiff, who is the operations manager of the Life Saving Society Manitoba branch, to talk about how our province was the highest among any province in Canada for drowning for children under the age of five. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today live on 680 CJOB. So this is uh, obviously an alarming statistic that uh, is in your report. Yeah, absolutely. This, you know, it's not something that we want to see uh, in Manitoba, but un- unfortunately it's, uh, it's a reality. So when are these uh, figures uh, compiled and released today? When do they take us up until, and are there any insights that are gained from releasing this report and studying it, Kevin? Yeah, so this uh, this report is a report that comes out annually by the Life Saving Society, uh, and this year's report looks at drowning deaths between uh, 2005 and 2014, but more specifically focused on the 2010 to 2014 uh, time period. And the reason the delay between four, 2014 and today is that we rely on coroner data rather than media reports for drowning uh, statistics information, and, and it's far more reliable to rely on coroner data. So the fact that this uh, the highest drowning rate in Manitoba was found among children under the age of five does this does this report provide any ins- any insight as to why this is the highest uh, drowning rate in our province? Well, when we when we take a look at the numbers associated with those drownings in the under five uh, age category, we find that predominantly the circumstances of those incidents um, uh, demonstrated a lack of supervision uh, for those kids. So we know that that is a major contributor to drowning incidents in that age group. So you know something that we really want to target uh, with families and caregivers to uh, be vigilant and keep kids within arm's reach at all times. What sort of circumstances, you mentioned this idea of lack of supervision, Kevin, but this whole idea of where are these drownings taking place? Is it alarming to note where they are? Is it not only in lakes or swimming pools? Are there other places where these drownings are taking place? Well, yeah, you know, and that's a good question because uh, a lot of people assume that a lot of this is happening in swimming pools, but I can tell you it's it's less than 3% of drownings happen in a swimming pool where there are lifeguards in Canada. So that's not really the, the focus, but uh, what we do see is a number of activities that people wouldn't necessarily associate with drowning as being a contributor to drowning. So one of the areas that is... Um, uh, a major contributor uh, is walking, running, or playing near the water. So these are activities where 
caregivers or, or participants had no intention of going in the water, but because of the proximity to the water, they were still at that drowning uh, or at a significant risk of drowning. So, for example, somebody like I, I, I cross the Assiniboine River every day over a footbridge where there's lots of room for, you know, along the riverbank to play. So let's say some right. kids are playing along the riverbank, they fall into the river. And so that kind of thing, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, we'll see uh, uh, people out on, on hiking or camping trips. Uh, you know, there was a, an incident not that long ago uh, this summer in um, Anishinaabe Park in um, uh, Kenora, I believe it was, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, a, a boy had kind of walked away from a, ca- a campsite uh, and had drowned, uh, you know, and they had no intention of being in the water. So examples like that. You know, and maybe the other uh, alarming thing that I got out of the information I have from the report, Kevin, is the idea that 96% of boating deaths, people involved in those were not wearing a life jacket. So preventable in most cases. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I know that I end up speaking to a lot of voters because of the, the work that I do. And I find that most of the time when I'm talking to voters, they understand that they have to have a life jacket in the boat with them because those are the, you know, Transport Canada guidelines. But so few are making the decision to put the life jacket on, you know, and, and it's, it's not going to save your life uh, the same way it would if you're wearing it, if it's just sitting in your boat. Well, and you, I sort of liken that to a seatbelt. I would never think about right. getting in my car without putting on my seatbelt. So why do you think then there's this mentality that you can get in another kind of motorized vehicle and, and not have some sort of a safety mechanism on your person? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's a bit of culture and it's a bit of um, uh, performing to the... Uh, expectations of Transport Canada, right? So, you know, we have this culture of, like, I've never drowned, which sounds odd, but a lot of people go through that. And they think, well, you know, as long as I've got the life jacket there, that's meeting the minimum standard. Um, but it's certainly not going to do the prevention in in, uh, in drowning uh, that we want it to do unless you're wearing it, you know? So I'm starting to think that, you know, maybe we need to look at, at reevaluating uh, that legislation in Canada and mandate wearing life jackets uh, rather than just having them. Kevin, before we, we go, I want you to re-clarify that. You bet. The legislation says you only must have the life jackets on board of a, a water vessel, watercraft. Yes. Uh, there is no minimum wage or minimum wage age in mm-hmm. which a, a child needs to have a life jacket on if they're on a watercraft? No, you're right. There isn't. So the the uh, the general guidelines for boating in Canada says that you need to have a life jacket of the appropriate size in good working order for each participant in the boat. That's it. But no dictation or regulation in order for them to have it on. That's right. Uh, no matter your age. That's right. So it's yeah, curious. We, we would say that you know uh, you we should everybody should be wearing those life jackets and um, and the other fallacy that I'd like to dispel is that you know only kids are the ones that are drowning. Uh, you know we had uh, high drowning rates in Manitoba in the twenty to twenty four, the forty to forty four, and the eighty to eighty four age brackets. Yeah, but you know what? Kids don't make these decisions for themselves. Right. Their guardians, their parents, those in charge of them are making those decisions. And I think uh, clearly the evidence would say to me, and I'm not necessarily one that, that likes legislation, the whole nanny state thing, but sure. clearly we're not making the right decisions when it comes to our kids and being on a boat. I agree. Thanks, Kevin. All Thank right. you.
Kevin Tordiff is the operations manager for Life Saving Society, Manitoba branch, talking about the drowning report 2017, which shows that the highest drowning rate in Manitoba was found among children under the age of five and was the highest among any province in Canada. And Greg, I remember, I don't remember the body of water. It was in the Lac Dubani area, so I could have been... Lee River, I think, is out there. There's Winnipeg River. And then, of course, there's the lake. I don't remember which one it was. The point I'm getting at is it had been a long time since I had been in, like, the water was really deep. Like, usually I'm, was, I'm used to either going in a pool or I'd be at uh, Winnipeg Beach. Sure. So you're walking slowly into the water and the water's slowly getting deeper. So this was the first one where essentially you jump off the dock and the water's deep, like really deep. And you, you can't could, touch the bottom. And you, I could feel it. And it was actually, like, I swam out, I don't know, I want to say 50 feet from the dock, and I was filled with this kind of sense of anxiety because it had been so long since I had been out for a swim like that. I thought I shouldn't, I don't, I can swim capably, but I maybe should have a life jacket on. And uh, so it, it, I don't, it can't hurt. I just don't understand why people don't mandate their kids Wearing, like, even on the dock. I know a lot of people who make their kids wear life jackets on the dock. You can call me a sissy all you want, but I agree with that. Accidents happen. I've fallen off the dock. I fell off the dock when I was five years old, six years old. I was an excellent swimmer. Still traumatized me for a great portion of my uh, of my younger years. Still bothers me the idea of seeing kids running around on a dock without a life jacket on when you know there's deep water water on either side or at the end. It just doesn't make any sense why you would roll the dice like that. Doesn't doesn't compute for me. So once again, thank you to Kevin Tordiff and for the to the Life Saving Society Manitoba branch to for bringing this to our attention. It is three seventeen. Traffic. Uh, we have someone has texted in to confirm that the stall semi in the right hand lane on southbound Lajemodier at Fermore still a problem because this texture says uh, traffic still backed up to Dawson Road. Turn off if you can. So we'll get more traffic details from Casey Gibb up next. Three twenty two. Tuesday afternoon. You had a case of the Mondays. I think I have a case of the Tuesdays today. Well, let's try to fix that, Greg. The words are just not flowing out of my mouth, <laughs> as prescribed. Well, let's just let the music flow. All right, I'm going to try and get through this flawlessly. <laughs> 45 years ago today, something very important in Winnipeg sports history, and really in Winnipeg's history overall, took place, and here's your hint. Is this too good a hint? Ah, I'm going to use it anyway. Took place at Portage and Maine. 204-780-6868. You have to call to win exactly. What are we giving away today, Brett? Four green fees for Pinawa Golf Club. It's northeast of Winnipeg, about an hour and a half from downtown. A little over an hour from the perimeter. It is spectacular. I was there just this past Sunday. I hadn't been there for about four years. It is sensational. It's one of my favorite courses, so you'll definitely want to check this out. 204-780-6868. Jeff Forte will field your calls, and we'll have a look at your forecast in two minutes. Gail Kazuska. Why am I mentioning that name, Brett McGarry? I don't know. Gail knew that today... 45 years ago at Portage in Maine, Bobby Hull became a member of the Winnipeg Jets. In the beginning, there was also Bobby Hull. 
The Blackhawks hero, trying to get rid of Hatskin and his crazy vision, jokingly demanded a million dollars to leave the Windy City for the fledgling WHA. When I was asked to join the WHA, uh, uh, there was there were a number of reasons that I considered it. First of all, of course, uh, if I told you the money didn't make any difference, I'd be telling you a lie, uh, and, and which it did. It was terrific. I thought the the offer to me and the payment uh, was very rewarding, and uh, there was just one thing I felt bad about, that it had to come from people that had so much faith in me uh, uh, who, who I'd never perform for rather than for the people that uh, I had performed for for a number of years. Uh, second of all, I felt that it was uh, a worthwhile cause. I, I thought that it, the WHA was needed in these certain areas where hockey, uh, professional hockey, was uh, long overdue. Uh, I felt that the people in the prairies and in certain areas deserved professional hockey. June 27th, 1972. I was born, I don't remember the day, but it was a day that really, I don't want to be melodramatic, but it's going to sound that way. It, it's a day that changed my life because it brought professional hockey to Winnipeg. It brought an opportunity for my dad and my brother and I growing up to go to hockey games together to see some of the very best players ever play the game, including Gordie Howe and, of course, on the Jets, Bobby Hull, Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nielsen, Lars-Eric Schoberg, just to, to mention a few, and a love affair with Winnipeg and my hometown that really was kindled by my love for the Jets and the Blue Bombers. I firmly believe if the World Hockey Association had never come to Winnipeg, the NHL would have never come to Winnipeg, and our family probably would have left Winnipeg a long time ago. It really was a, a tie that binded us to the community, something that we loved and something that we shared. It was a shared love, a shared passion. And uh, in spite of the presence of the Jets, I moved away three times and and came back three times, although uh, two times that I moved away, the, the Jets uh, had one foot out the door the first time and, and weren't even here the second time or the third time I moved away. The, the Jets such a big part of so many of our, uh, our youth. And so today's a big day. 45 years ago today, Bobby Hull signed from the National Hockey League to the Winnipeg Jets. Do you get a cake to mark the occasion? No cake. There'll be no cake. Did you get at least some Mexican chili chips in the newsroom? I did get some Mexican chili <laughs> chips in the newsroom. I know that they're there because I had some too. <laughs> hey, we were talking oh, earlier. But, but just got to, oh, sorry, sure. to, uh, Gail won herself the, the passes to Pinawaw Golf Club. Four passes, four green fees for Pinawaw Golf Club for correctly answering that question. So congratulations, Gail. And we have more green fees to give away all week to this glorious golf course northeast of Winnipeg. Now, you, you always call me the king of segues. I was going to tie it all together mm. uh, with regard to Pinawa, and I can't wait to get out there. But uh, we were talking earlier about Serena Williams and John McEnroe's comments about Serena Williams, the announcement today of the class for the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. And it would be pretty difficult, in my opinion, to find an athlete, a better athlete produced in our province, I don't care gender or otherwise, than Cindy Klassen. Yeah, that would be a tough one, to uh, say the least. How many medals did she win in that one Olympic Games? I think it was five. Were they all gold medals? No, she had a couple of 
other couple. I'm going to just look it up right now here. You know, when it comes to t- to statistics and speed skating, uh, it's just categorical. You know, when the head of the IOC calls you the darling of the Olympics, uh, you know that you've done absolutely something special. She won gold in Turin, two silver in Turin, and then five bronze medal. Um, or pardon me, three more bronze medal, three in, uh, one in Salt Lake City, gee whiz, Mackling, and two in Turin. So it was one, two, three, four, five in Turin and one in Salt Lake City. That is quite incredible to think that uh, that many medals were won in one Olympic Games by any athlete, never mind just a Manitoban athlete. So why did you bring that up, Greg? Oh, just because it was announced today that the uh, Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame inductees for 2017 were announced today, and Cindy Clausen right at the head of the class. Well, that's right, and earlier today, Hal Anderson spoke with Colleen Dufresne, I do do believe, so you'll be able to look that up. He did indeed. At cjob.com in the audio vault. Uh, just go to cjob.com and there's a, there are two spots where you'll see the word more. So just click on that second one, the one that's on the, that's sort of below the first one. And then you'll see the drop down to all of the audio on demand stuff where you can access the, uh, audio vault. Sandra Carroll, who I remember as a basketball player, and I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to guess. I can't remember UWU of of uh, Winnipeg, but I certainly remember her. Jamie Dawson, you mentioned Colleen Dufresne, Wayne Hildall, sports medicine leader, founder, I think, of the, the Pan Am Clinic, Arthur Johnson, golf, and as a builder, Jamie Jones, all-around athlete. You were snubbed again. Cindy Clausen, Bob Kramer, and 1995, the Kelly McKenzie team uh, in curling. Uh, my name wasn't on it yet again. I feel snubbed. Oh, is that what you were... Yeah, I heard you saying earlier that you got snubbed again. Snubbed again. I, w- I was. I meant to ask you what you were talking feeling about. Feeling snubbed about? And then I, I guess I just stopped in being stopped caring. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I was working on something. I so don't blame you. I was trying. Anyway. I was under the gun trying to record <laughs> something. So I heard you'd say it, and I thought, I wonder what he's talking about. I'll ask him after, and then I clearly forgot. So. What an odd way to to list these medals on this site that I'm on right now. You may have heard of it, Wikipedia, mm. for Cindy Clausen here. Turin, Turin, Turin. And then they throw Salt Lake City right in the middle of two other Turins. So I apologize while I was trying to disseminate that information. You're exactly right. It was five in Turin and then the bronze medal in Salt Lake City. Amazing athlete, Cindy Clausen. Started out as a hockey player and said, nah, I'm going to try this speed skating thing. Yeah, worked out not too bad. <laughs> 345 on 680 CJOB. We are going to look at traffic. We're going to look at weather. And then we will look at the news. Find out what is coming up on the news from 4 until 7 when we're paid a visit by Julie Buckingham and Richard Kluche. You did a kind of a what? What is this sort of thing about, I don't know, three, four minutes ago while we were off the air? Something exciting coming to the city of Transcona. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The city of Transcona. That's right. Are you guys doing anything on this water park that's coming to... Oh, we're all over it now that Transcona is ahead of St. Norbert when it comes to recreation. It's right next to the (laughs) worst baseball field in the city. You got that right, sister. They call it the Transcona Stadium. Yeah, yeah. It is... Atrocious. Yeah, yeah, far from a stadium. It's a falling, falling apart. But you, here's the good news. You don't have to go to Portage La Prairie for well, notes. It's not that big. 
I don't think. Well, speaking oh, of yeah. Portage La Prairie, a little bit of breaking news here that we're uh, following this afternoon. We're told that there is a lockdown of uh, most schools in Portage La Prairie right now as RCMP look for somebody. And They're it's, actually uh, asking residents to stay in their homes. They are well. asking residents to stay in their homes. Uh, we're getting more information on that. This is just a couple of tweets from the RCMP at this point. This but, is uh, uh, apparently due to an armed individual. Yeah, we are endeavoring to get more information on that. Yeah, that's one of those things where I mentioned Portage La Prairie and boom, you guys have a news story. So uh, there was no joke intended there. I had no idea you guys were going to mention that. just breaking literally uh, within the last couple of minutes. Uh, on the fun side, Mitch Rossett doing a bit of a story uh, on the gold eyes. And and in baseball players, uh, if you know anything about baseball, they all get to choose their walk-up song when they're going to go up and bat. So if you were, what would your entrance song be? Oh, that's easy for me, but it wouldn't work for for baseball because my theme song is Walk by the Foo Fighters. So unless I was intending to uh, to walk every time up to the plate, that's not, you, that's probably not going to work. What would you choose, Brett? Bodies by Drowning Pool. Let the bodies hit the floor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Clooch. Well, we're going to talk about ours after four. Of yes. course you are. I don't know why I would have thought anything <laughs> Not different. only are we going to choose our own, we have yeah. chosen for each other. Oh, that's kind of cool. Okay, I'll be looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. I don't often say that. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're going for. <laughs> oh, you know, I love to tease you. What else have you got going on? That's it. That's it. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, walking up to baseball songs, Porridge La Prairie, lockdown, and what was the other thing? Oh, uh, we're also going to track down the very latest information on uh, this ransomware attack that's hitting Europe. And uh, we've got one of the world's best, the chief scientist at McAfee, just joining us after the 4 o'clock. Nice. And, and uh, I know you're both carnivores. You enjoy the red meat. Indeed. Uh, oh. All the better reason to take note of yes. a new tick yes. that is making its way. Uh, they have tracked it as far north as Minnesota. We'll get you more information about the Lone Star Another tick. reason why we should be building a wall. Uh, agreed, and this is now enemy number one, McGarry. Take note of what okay. this text That's looks like. That's a great song, by the way. Your walk-in song is perfect for you. Yeah, it's angry. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> you it, it indicates that, players hit the floor. that there will be smashing involved. So, yes, Julie and Richard, thank you so much. More of the news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. Yeah, you. I noticed uh, that you you high-fived Julie as she uh, made her took her shot against the Transcona Stadium. I have not seen it, actually, in years. I used it's to, disintegrating, Brett. Yeah, because I remember it was falling apart the last time I was there, say, 15 years ago. So it's falling into a state of disrepair. And all the auxiliary uh, fields around. Is it Roland Michener Arena? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just horrible. Shameful, in fact. And that's not on the city of Transcona because, of course, that is a fictitious place. Transcona officially a part of Winnipeg for at least five years now. And <laughs> so it's the city of Winnipeg that should be ashamed for the way that arena has maintained. The parking lot across the street has been not maintained and the lack of maintenance around uh, uh, that baseball field and that baseball stadium. I'll get off my high horse. That's now. just that, that's a real shame. I remember uh, wanting to, you know, when I was a kid, I was wondering what it would be like to play in that ballpark. Sure. I was never good enough. The, the I think only the A teams ever played in Transcona, so or the stadium. So I was never quite good enough. But I always wanted to just see if I could hit one out of that park because I. I don't think it was a regulation, but it was much bigger than the the ballparks that I was used to playing in. 
uh, as a kid at least. So that's that really makes me sad. That and of course, they, they had the lights as well, right? That's right. They may still have the lights. I don't know. And I've got a buddy who lives like right at the end of the back lane that that goes up against that. He just shakes his head whenever I bring it up. So uh, we'll leave bad. it there. All right. Well, when we'll leave the show there. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling, Jeff Forte in Master Control. Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham have the news coming up from 4 until 7. And Charles Adler tonight is on at 9 o'clock on 680 CJOB.